Chapters seventeen and eighteen of her mother's secret. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter seventeen. Rosemary Hedge. Oldfield, December twentieth, eighteen blank. Suki, I saw Miss Sibby Bayard's gad go by the house this morning on the mule with a bag of wheat before him, taking it to Old Kilman's mill to be ground, and I know she is going to have hot biscuits for supper out of the new wheat so I want you to come and bring Rosemary with you, and we will walk over there and take tea with her. You ride, Joe, and take the child up behind you, and let the boy walk. Dolly. Suki was Miss Grandier, a tall, handsome, and dignified maiden lady of about forty years of age. She had a shapely head, regular features, fair complexion, blue eyes and brown hair, brushed away from her forehead and twisted into a roll on the top of her head. She wore a plain, dark calico gown, made with a short waist, tight sleeves, and long, narrow skirt, and a plain white muslin handkerchief around her neck, and pinned firmly across her bosom. She stood upon the rudest sort of porch, built of rough pine boards, and shaded by hop vines, now withered under the wintry air. Yet homely as were her attire and surroundings, it seemed as inappropriate for any one to call the stately Susanna Grandier, Suki, as it is for some writers to refer to England's magnificent Elizabeth as Queen Bess. Beside this dignified dame stood a very dainty, delicate, and pathetic-looking little girl of about twelve years of age, who leaned half fondly, half lazily against the lady's side. She was Miss Grandier's niece, shadow and worshipper. Her name was Rosemary Hedge, and she was the only and orphan child of Miss Grandier's widow sister, Mrs. Dorothy Hedge, the writer of the note. Rosemary was a slight, tiny, fragile creature, with a mere slip of a figure, and mites of hands and feet. She had a thin face, a pale rose complexion, large, light blue eyes, and black hair, which she wore as children do now, partly banged across her forehead, but mostly hanging down her shoulders. She was clothed in a prim, blue calico gown, with a short waist, high neck, tight sleeves, and a skirt all the way down to her feet which were shod in coarse leather shoes over home-knit gray stockings. The child was looking up to her aunt in great anxiety, while the latter read the letter brought by the negro boy Dan, who stood, torn hat in hand, holding the bridle of a short, fat, white cob, jovial by name, commonly called Joe. "'Is it for me to go home? Oh, Aunt Suki, is it for me to go home?' uneasily inquired the little girl, as the lady folded the letter. "'No, child, no,' soothingly replied the lady. "'It is only to ask both of us to ride four miles and walk one, "'for the sake of eating hot biscuits, in capital letters, for supper. "'She say, Miss Dolly say, how you and Miss Romary must ride Joe, and me to lead him.' "'Here,' explained the ragged negro boy. "'Just like my poor sister Hedge. "'Well, it does not matter much. "'I was thinking about going over to Oldfield to-day.' but all the horses here being at work I had to give it up. Anyhow, I had certainly made up my mind to go down on the bay, before the great force wedding, for as the ceremony is to be performed at All Faith Church, it will be much more convenient to attend it from Oldfield than from here. Are the ladies at Oldfield invited to the wedding, do you know, Dan? Oh, lor, yes'm. Everybody is whited, and a church all desiccated full o' holly and evergreens, like Christmas. Decorated, you mean, Dan. "'Yes'm, desecrated.' "'Now then, Dan, give the horse some water, "'and let him rest while you get something to eat.' 
"'We have just now done dinner, and the servants are taking theirs in the kitchen. "'Aunt Moll will give you yours, and by the time you have finished we shall be ready to start. "'Come, Rosemary.' "'And taking her niece by the hand, Miss Grandiere stepped from the porch into a plainly furnished bedchamber, "'which was her own private apartment, sitting-room by day, bedroom by night.' and which she shared with her favorite niece whenever the little girl happened to be staying with her, which was, indeed, most of the time. Aunt Suki's room was the best bedchamber in the farmhouse, being on the first floor, in the rear of the building, and opening upon the vine-shaded porch on the outside, and into the common hall on the inside. On a line with the porch was the best parlor, and on the other side of the hall there was a front dining-room and a back sitting-room. Although Aunt Suki's room was the best, it was a very plain apartment, with whitewashed walls and bare floor. On each side of the door, as you entered from the porch, was a window, making the place very light and cheerful. This was the east side. On the south side was an open fireplace, with a bright oak-wood fire burning in it, defended by a wire fender. Above it was a mantelpiece, adorned by a fine engraving of the nativity in a plain wooden frame, and flanked by two brass candlesticks. In the corner was a triangular cupboard with glass doors reaching from floor to ceiling, and filled with a collection of rare old china which would have been the envy and despair of a wealthy and fashionable collector. For one of Aunt Suki's grandfathers, and two of her uncles, and one of her brothers had been captains of East India merchantmen. On the west side stood a high, old-fashioned chest of drawers, whose top was covered with a fair white linen cloth and adorned by an old-time looking-glass, mounted on its own box of small dressing-drawers. On each side of this glass were two round bandboxes of blue paper, containing two poke-bonnets, as common then as now. Finally, on the north side of the room, with its head against the wall, stood the pride of the chamber, a four-post mahogany bedstead with white dimity curtains, and with a full high feather-bed and bolsters and pillows heaped up, and covered, the bed with a homemade blue-and-white counterpane, and the bolster and pillows by cases of homespun white linen. All along the walls of the room, between every piece of furniture, stood plain chip-bottom pine chairs. In the middle of the room, as being in constant use, was a chip-bottom rocker and a child's low chair of the same material. A large spinning-wheel stood in the corner between the window and the fireplace, and before it stood a negro girl spinning. This was Miss Suki's own maid, Henny. Miss Susanna Grandier did not live in her own house, although she was a woman of ample means and might have done so. She divided her time about equally between the two farmhouses, Grove Hill, the home of her married sister, Mrs. William Elk, where she was staying at present, and Oldfield, the home of her married brother, Thomas Grandier, and also of their widowed sister, Mrs. Dorothy Hedge, to which she had just been invited. These two places were always familiarly referred to by their respective owners as Up in the Forest and Down on the Bay, Grove Hill being Up in the Forest, and Oldfield, Down on the Bay. In both these farmhouses there was a room set apart and known as Aunt Suki's room, and her treasures, her Larrys and Penates, were about equally divided between them. These rooms, however, when unoccupied, were at the disposal of any visitor who might be staying at either house during the absence of Miss Grandier. But whether Aunt Suki sojourned at Oldfield or at Grove Hill, her quaint little orphan niece Rosemary was always her inseparable companion, an arrangement that was not displeasing to the widowed mother, who said in her heart, 
"'If anything should happen to me, Suki will take care of Rosemary. "'Or, if Suki should never marry, Rosemary will be her heiress.' "'Even the negroes said, "'Miss Romery is mo like Miss Suki's own child "'than Miss Dolly's darter, anyways.' "'They had now been staying up in the forest ever since harvest, "'and their manner of life was quaint enough, especially in the evenings. "'When the day was nearly spent and the family supper was over, "'and Uncle Billy had gone out to see that barn and stable and sheepfold "'were well secured, and all else right outside.' and when Aunt Molly had gone her rounds in poultry-yard and dairy, and was putting her children to bed, then Aunt Suki, Rosemary, and the negro girl Henny would retire into Aunt Suki's room, to utilize the lingering light of the short winter day by working at whatever tasks were on hand. For never did holiday begin until the candle should be lighted. It was some homely country work always, and Aunt Suki would probably be knitting, Rosemary sewing together scraps for a patchwork quilt, and the negro girl, Henny, seated on a stool, would be engaged in winding off the yarn from a jack into balls. It was usually little Rosemary who would give the signal for stopping work by saying, in pleading tones, "'Aunt Suki, ain't it most time to let down the blinds and light the candle?' Whereupon the negro girl would set her real jack in the corner and untie and drop the paper blinds before the two windows and light the tallow dip on the mantelpiece." Rosemary would roll up her pieces and put away her work in a little homemade chip basket, which she would hang upon its own nail. Last of all, Aunt Suki would draw her knitting needle from its sheaf, roll up the half-finished stocking, and put it away in a work-bag hanging on a hook near the chimney-corner. And then began the dissipations of the evening. Innocent enough dissipations, though they were howled at by some folks. Aunt Suki would resume her seat in the rocker. Henny would set a little table near her mistress, and place on it the lighted candle and a pair of snuffers. Rosemary would bring out from the top drawer of the bureau a hoarded and treasured volume, and lay it beside them. Then, when all were seated, the lady in her rocker, the child on a little chair at her feet, and the negro girl on the floor, in the corner of the chimney, Aunt Suki would open the book and begin where she left off the night before, and go on with the fortunes of Evelina Camilla, Clara Saharlow, or Amanda Fitzallen, as the case might be, novels which, however excellent in themselves, would scarcely be read in these days, though in those they were devoured, so much so, that if one of them appeared in any house, it was sure to go the round of the whole county, and be read to rags before it got home again, if it ever did. In this respect the neighborhood was a free, unorganized, irresponsible, circulating library. Aunt Suki bought some books, lent some, and borrowed some, but never kept any. So evening after evening she would read to her a ton of hearers, while little Rosemary's large blue eyes grew larger and larger with wonder and interest, and Henny's attention relaxed, and her head drooped lower and lower as she nodded over the fire, until there seemed some danger of her falling into it. In this manner Miss Suki was training, all unconsciously, the mind of the most romantic little fairy that ever lived to make a romance of her own. When the dip-candle had burned nearly down to the socket, Aunt Suki knew by that sign that it was about nine o'clock. They had no other timepiece, so they went by the candle, which always burned just so long. Then Aunt Suki would only finish her chapter before closing her book. Then Henny would wake up, light a fresh candle, and stand waiting orders. She need never have waited, for she knew exactly what the order would be, it was always the same formula. 
Henny, go to the storehouse, and draw a jug of fresh cider, and cork it tight. Then take the bread tray, and get a quart of flour, and a quarter pound of lard, and a teaspoon of salt, and bring all in here. And don't forget the rolling board and pin, nor the hoe blade. These would all be brought, and then Henny, having carefully washed her hands, and set the clean hoe blade to heat before the fire, would stand up to the table upon which she had placed her kneading tray, and there she would knead, and afterward roll out her hoe-cake, and spread it on the heated hoe to bake before the fire. She would, in fact, bake three in succession, turning them carefully, and finally placing them near the fire as they were taken off the hoe, to be kept hot until all was ready. Lastly, she would carry away all the utensils used, bring the little table to the front of the fire, and place cider, glasses, hoe-cakes, and china plates from the corner cupboard upon it. And the aunt and niece would sit down and take a snack, as they called it, make a very hearty supper of very substantial food, as we should certainly say. What powers of digestion they must have had! When they had feasted, Henny would finish what was left, clear and replace the table, replenish the fire from the wood-pile outside the door, sweep the hearth, put up the fender, and bid her mistress good-night. The aunt and niece would say their prayers, undress, and go to bed together. This was the routine, observed every evening, that Rosemary enjoyed more than anything on the face of the earth, except, oh yes, except going to the dancing-school at Charlotte Hall, whither she was taken with her cousins at Oldfield twice a week. CHAPTER Eighteen: THE VISIT TO MISS SIBBY Just such an evening the two cronies had passed on the day previous to the sudden invitation to go to Miss Sibby's. Rosemary hated to go. She knew to do so would involve the sacrifice of their evening readings. "'Oh, Aunt Suki,' she said, as she buttoned up her blue bombazette pelisse, "'oh, to think that we had got into such an interesting part of the children of the Abbey. Amanda had just met Lord Mortimer, and now it will be a week, or maybe a fortnight, before we can go on with it. Never mind, Rosemary. Your mother lets you stay with me nearly always. And you are her only child, too, and she is a widow.' "'so when she sends for us we must go,' said Aunt Suki. "'Oh, yes, I know, but Amanda and Lord Mortimer—' "'Never mind Amanda and Lord Mortimer. "'They can wait until we come back. "'Now roll up your quilt pieces, and we will put them in my bag. "'Come, are you ready?' "'Yes, Aunt Suki, soon as I have pulled on my mitts.' "'Now we must go and take leave of Molly and the children,' said Miss Grandier. But as she spoke, there entered from the door on the right of the fireplace a pretty, fragile woman of about forty-five years of age, who, with the exception of her fair skin, blue eyes, and brown hair, bore not the slightest resemblance to her tall, stately, and handsome sister. She was dressed in a brown linsey gown, white apron, white neck-shawl, and white cap. She was closely followed by two little girls of ten and twelve years of age, fair and blue-eyed like their mother with frocks that seemed to have been cut off the same piece as their mother's gown. They were the two children of the house, Irina and Melina Elk. "'Why, I have just heard from Dan that you are going down on the bay,' said the newcomer. "'Yes, Dolly Hedge has sent for us, and as I want to go so as to see the wedding at All Faith on Tuesday, I think it is rather lucky that she has sent. "'How long are you going to stay?' "'Until after the wedding, certainly, perhaps longer.' "'Well, I do feel so ashamed of the forces for throwing off their own flesh and blood "'for the sake of a stranger and a foreigner, that I have no patience with them, "'and I wouldn't go to the wedding. No, not if it was next door.' "'But Molly, the young lady fell in love with the English officer, 
and I think it was very noble of her father to sacrifice his own dearest hopes on the shrine of his daughter's happiness. Oh, don't talk to me about shrines and sacrifices. That's all out of the romances you wear your eyes out reading at night. I believe in neighbors and kinsfolks, not in strangers and foreigners. There. Well, Molly, you have a right to your own opinions, and the forces have a right to theirs. You must admit that. Yes, and the heathen have a right to theirs, I suppose you think, Suki. No, that is carrying the matter too far. But good-bye, Molly, we must go now. We will be back as soon as we can. The departing ones kissed their relatives, and went out to the block, where Dan stood holding the horse. Henny followed with a heavy shawl, which she folded and laid upon the saddle. Mind, girl, as soon as you have cleaned up the room, get ready and come after us. We may stay longer than we expect down on the bay, so you must bring a change of clothes with you. Be sure to start from here in time to get to Oldfield before night. I don't like the idea of your going through the forest alone after dark, said Miss Grandier. Never you fear, Miss Suki. I be down at Oldfield, by de time yo dare, yourself, fo sundown anyhow, said the negro girl, as she helped her mistress to climb into the saddle, and then lifted Rosemary up to a seat behind her. Now, Miss Rosary, yo hole on tight. Put your arms round yo Aunt Suki's waist, and hold on tight. Don't you slip off. Looky here, yo nigger Dan. You walk long side of dis child, case she falls off. Tell you what, nigger, ef dis child fall off and break her arm or anything, you better not show yo face at Oldfield, nor likewise here, neither. Yo hears me, don't you? Oh, Aunt Henny, I am not going to fall off, nor neither would Dan let me. Poor Dan, don't scold him beforehand, pleaded Rosemary. Hi, child, twould be too late to scold arterward. What I says is, do you scoldin' and you whippin' for it as any cause for it? Tain't no good to do it arterward. Twon't undo nothin' what's done, said Henny. But her wisdom was lost on the party, who had already started on their way, aunt and niece riding double, and Dan walking beside the horse. Their way lay over snow-covered ground, through bare woods, up and down rolling hills, and over frozen streams. It was three o'clock in the afternoon when they emerged from the last piece of woods, and entered upon a cultivated clearing, in which stood an old-fashioned farmhouse, with a steep roof with gable ends, dormer windows, and wide porches, surrounded by its barn, granaries, and negro quarters. As Miss Grandier pulled up at the horse-block before the door, a lady, tall, stately, handsome, with a fair complexion, blue eyes and brown hair, very like Miss Grandier herself, and handsomely dressed in a puce-colored silk pelisse and a beaver bonnet, appeared at the door and said, "'You haven't time to stop, Suki. Sally and the children are all well, and are in the storeroom picking over apples. You can see them when we come home this evening, but now we must hurry. So you just get down and set the child in your seat, and let Dan lead the horse, and we will walk through the woods to Miss Sibby's. I don't know what is going on there, but something is.' "'I thought it was hot biscuits out of the new flour,' said Miss Grandier. "'Yes, it is that, too,' replied Mrs. Hedge, without perceiving the sarcasm. "'But there is something else. Something that that wild young blade, Roland Bayard, and that young midshipman force have on foot. I know there is.' "'Roland Bayard? Has he come home?' "'So Gad says. I couldn't get much out of that nigger, though. He said he was in a hurry, and hadn't time to stop.' He said he had to carry that bag of wheat to the mill and get it ground, and carry it back home in time to make bread for supper. So you see, I couldn't get much out of him. 
By this time the new order of procession was formed, and the sisters walked on together, followed by little Rosemary on the saddle, and Dan leading the horse. "'I should not think,' said Miss Grandiere, "'that young midshipman Force would feel very much like skylarking after such a disappointment and mortification as he has had.' "'No, would you now? But then he was a mere boy, and she only a child, when they were engaged.' "'And then, after three years, you know, both might have changed their minds,' suggested practical Mrs. Hedge. "'I don't know,' sighed sentimental Miss Grandier. "'Well, I tell you, of all the scapegrace, devil-may-care, never-do-well, neck-or-nothing boys that ever lived or died in this world, that Roland Bayard is the very worst. I am sorry young Force has anything to do with him.' "'I don't think he is evil at heart,' pleaded Miss Grandier. "'Evil at heart,' repeated Mrs. Hedge, reflectively. "'No, perhaps not.' "'He is a little wild, to be sure.' "'A little wild? He is enough to break Miss Sibby's heart.' "'I don't see why. He is no kin to her.' "'No, but she loves him, as if he were her only son. She liked to have cried her eyes out when he went to see, you know.' "'Yes, I know, and yet it was as good a career as he could enter upon. The merchant service is not so genteel as the navy, to be sure.' But then, it is really more promising, in a lucrative point of view, and a young man of no family need not mind about that gentility. Yes, that is just what grieved Miss Sibby's heart, that her adopted nephew should be obliged to gratify his passion for the sea by entering the merchant service instead of the United States Navy. Poor Miss Sibby, it is hard to say whether her pride in her own descent or her love for her adopted nephew is her ruling passion, concluded Miss Grandier with a smile. Their walk had now brought them to the borders of a frozen creek, on the other side of which stood a small farmhouse, surrounded by a few outbuildings. This was Forest Rest, or Miss Sibby's, as it was frequently called. At the open door stood a short, stout old lady, in a homespun brown linsey gown, and a white apron, and a white cap. She had seen the approach of visitors from her window, and had come out to welcome them. "'How do, how do!' she exclaimed holding out both hands and shaking them, right and left. "'How de do! Why, I'm mighty proud to see you. Come in, come in, out in the cold,' she added, as she led her visitors through the front door that opened immediately into the principal room of the house. It was a large, homely room, with whitewashed walls, bare floor, large open fireplace, and two front windows, shaded with blue paper blinds. It was plainly furnished with a pine table, chip chairs, corner cupboard, tall clock, and all the usual features of the rustic parlor. Its great redeeming point was the glowing fire of oak logs that burned in the broad chimney. "'Come right here and sit down, and get a good warm before you take off your things. Make yourself comfortable, says I. Never mind looks,' said Miss Sibby, drawing chairs close to the hearth for her half-frozen guests. "'So Roland has come home, I hear, Miss Sibby,' began Mrs. Hedge, as she stretched her benumbed fingers over the fire." "'Yes, he has, safe and sound, thanks be to the Lord. "'He got home the very self-same day that young Laforce arrove, "'though neither of them knowed anything about the other's coming, "'till they met by accident at old Luke Barrier's store. "'Now wasn't that a coinference? "'Truth is stranger nor fiction,' says I. "'Is he going to see again, Miss Sibby?' inquired Miss Grandier. "'Well, I reckon sooner or later he must go, if he won't do nothing else. "'A young youth must do something for a living,' says I. "'and if he don't do one thing, he must do another,' says I. 
but I do hope next time as he may get a berth along of your brother George. When is Captain Grandier expected home? I don't know. He was at Rio de Janeiro when we heard from him last. Ah, me, so far as that. That's on the coast of Guinea, ain't it? No, Brazil, South America. Well, Lord knows that's far enough. I did hope as the kitty would be coming home soon, and Roland could get a berth, long a Captain Grandier. But there's nothing but disappointment in this world, says I. The worst case of disappointment I know is that of poor young Leonidas Force, said Mrs. Hedge. Now ain't it, though, chimed in Miss Sibby. To come home to meet his sweetheart, and find her just about to be married to another man. And him a furriner, that's what makes me sick, a furriner. Them as has the least to do with furriners, says I, comes the best off, says I. It's all the gal's fault, too. She fell in love along of this furriner, and her father he give in to her, cause she cried and took on. But, lor, what could you expect of the young thing, says I? Trot, sire, trot, dam, says I. The colt will never pace, says I. And you may take my word for that. What do you mean, Miss Sibby? How do you apply the proverb to this case? inquired Miss Grandier. Why, don't you see? What did her daddy do? Stead a marrying of some old neighbor's daughter, like you, Miss Suki. No, I thank you, put in Miss Grandier. Or me, continued Miss Sibby, without noticing the interruption. Or some other, as everybody knows all about. What did he go and do? Why, he went way out yonder to the devil's icy peak, summers, and married of a stranger and a furriner, and a heathen and a pagan, for aught he knew, and fetches of her home here to us. That's what her daddy did. And now, what did her mammy do? Why, stead o' marrying one of her own countrymen and kinsfolk, she ups and marries American man, as was a stranger and furriner to her, and a heathen and a pagan for aught that she knew. But they loved one another, there is no question of that, pleaded Miss Grandier. What if they did? That's the contrariness of it, says I. What call had either of em be a lovin' of strangers and furriners and a marrying of them, says I? And now the gal has done just as her father and mother did before her, turned her back on her own kith and kin, and took up long of a stranger and a furriner and a heathen and a pagan for aught she knows, says I. It's in the blood, says I. Trot, sire, trot, dam, says I, and the cold'll never pace, says I. And now, ladies, if you have thought out, and will take off your bonnets and things, I will put them away. But maybe you would rather go to a bedroom. Yes, said Miss Grandier, rising and going to a door on the side leading into an inner chamber. Oh, stop, don't go in there, please, Miss Suki. I, I have got a strange lady in there, hastily exclaimed their hostess. A strange lady, repeated Miss Grandier, in surprise. "'Yes, leastways a strange woman. I don't know about a lady. For if you're not acquainted with a person, says I, you can't tell if they are ladies or no. But come upstairs, and I will tell you about her. Or leastways, all I know about her. Lor, I sometimes spicions as maybe she's Roland's mother.'" End of chapter 18